welcome back to Cognitive Revolution. I'm Cody Commerce, and this is my show about the personal side of the intellectual journey. Right, so before we get started today, I just want to tell you about my new show. It's called Notes from the Field, and it's a show about travel, which is something that a lot of us, certainly myself included, are missing out on right now. And so basically it's a collection of, they're essentially travel essays that I have been working on for the last couple of years and during this period of being stuck inside, not being able to go to interesting places, I wanted to put them out there into a format that people could enjoy. And some of my favorite audio narrative experiences have been these kinds of travelogues. And it's something that I know that I want to do in my in my own career as a as a writer, and so this is my this is my initial foray into it. And part of the motivation behind it is that so this show, Cognitive Revolution, is all about intellectuals and writers and academics and scientists and these people who come up with big ideas. And so I'm certainly drawn to that kind of person, but there's also another kind of person that I'm drawn to, and that is the traveler. It's the person who goes out there into the world to a place that they don't understand and they don't know anything about. They try and make sense of what's going on, what the people are up to over there, and then they come back and they tell the rest of us about it. And so the overlap between you know the traveler, the intellectual, is the anthropologist. And that's something that is definitely, uh, so if you listen to this podcast, you know that I have a not-so-secret obsession with anthropologists, even though my background is in psychology and cognitive science and all that sort of stuff. So it may be in a sort of informal, uh, tangential way. That's kind of what I'm trying to get at in this new show. And this week's episode is on Johannesburg. Last week was uh, Istanbul, which was one of my favorite pieces in it. And this one is about an experience basically uh, entering Johannesburg for the first time. It was the first time I'd ever been to Africa. And... It's a story about the people that I met going out to this random music venue. And it's a story which I think is a, quite a bit of fun and has a few different elements to it. And you meet some characters along the way. So uh, this is, is one of the shorter ones, but I think it, there's, there's a lot of good stuff in here. So go ahead and take a listen to that if you get a chance. You can find it anywhere that you listen to Cognitive Evolution, anywhere that you listen to your podcasts, iTunes, Spotify, uh, they're now on Amazon, apparently. But anyway, that's Notes from the Field. And I hope you go check it out. And uh, you know, thank you for, for giving that a listen. And so to this week's guest, we have Don Norman. This is someone who I'm, I was really excited to talk to. And I guess my, my introduction to Don Norman was that. So right out of undergraduate, literally the day after graduation, I moved from Los Angeles to... To Northern California, to Silicon Valley, where I was working in a startup, a venture-backed, you know, sort of promised land for uh, young, uh, technologically savvy people fresh out of college, that sort of thing. And uh, I remember distinctly one of my first experiences at this startup with uh, the, this was a small team, maybe about 12 people at the time, uh, an interaction with the CEO, his name was Jerry Talton and someone I look up to a lot. And he plopped this book down in front of me and said, look, this is something that is required life reading, was the specific phrase that he used. And that book was The Design of Everyday Things by Don Norman. 
And it turns out that this is a work that spans design as well as cognitive science. So I mean, this is these are the two things that we touch on a lot in this uh, in the, in this conversation. Don Norman was there at the beginning of cognitive science. Was the I believe the chair of the very first cognitive science department in the world at uh, University of California, San Diego. He was at the Center for Cognitive Studies at Harvard, which was the big epicenter of the cognitive revolution. Uh, in the sort of late 60s, early 70s. And he worked with George A. Miller and all these other amazing people and has done a lot of uh, phenomenal research in his own right. And then he's also basically spearheaded this entire prong of design. You could think of it as user-centered design. And how do we actually make things that are not just pretty and in the, the sort of classical standards that you use to evaluate design, but how do we make things that make sense to people? And so one of the, you know, sort of psychological things that he touches on in, in, in this book is the idea of an affordance. So when you have a door, the affordance of the door is how it lets you go through what would otherwise be a wall. And some doors uh, open automatically. Some doors, you push them. Some doors, they only go in one direction. And there's all these different uh, aspects of how doors work. And those are the affordances. And what you need is your signifiers to match up with your affordances. So when you have a door that you're going to, and it only goes, it only opens in one direction, how do you know before you get there which direction that door is going to open? And all of us have had the experience of what are called Norman doors, which are doors where you aren't able to predict which way they're going to go. And so you bump into them to try and push them, but they're actually a pull. And how are you supposed to know that? And so, for example, uh, an example of how to match up your signifiers with your affordances is if you have a handle. Well, what do you do with a handle? You pull it. So uh, if one side of the door has a handle, the other side has a plate, plates, you can't pull them, so you push them, uh, that is a way of differentiating which side you're supposed to do. However, you'll see uh, a lot of doors, I can think of several off the top of my head, that are push and pull, you know, one way only, but have handles on both sides of them. And so you don't really know what to do with them. So that's, that's the kind of thing that Don has studied in the intersection of cognitive science and design. Uh, it's really one of the great book, cognitive science books of all time. The design of everyday things and don is in so much interesting stuff we talk about a lot, large chunks of it uh he, he was he was a key person at apple for a while and he's done a lot both in industry and academia he's been a lot of places like i said in the history of cognitive science and he's been a, a, a very influential person in design in silicon valley and in the tech world so it was a huge honor to have him on the podcast it was very interesting to talk to him and uh, I think this, this, is, this is a great one. So I hope, I hope you enjoy it. And without any further ado, here is Don Norman. So I started off by getting a degree in electrical engineering from MIT. I then went to graduate school at the University of Pennsylvania in electrical engineering. And I was particularly interested in the newly developing field called computers. And I want to point out, this is in the 1950s, the late 1950s. And uh, after two years at the in the Moore School of Electrical Engineering at Penn, 
uh, it was time, I got a master's degree, but it was time to go on to a PhD degree and I wanted to do computer science and they didn't have it. And I had gone to Penn because Penn is where the computers started. In the United States, the first computers were built at the University of Pennsylvania, the ENIAC and the EDVAC. And um, they didn't have any. They said, oh, wait a, little, wait a little while. You could be our very first student. And just then the uh, Department of Psychology got a new chair uh, Bob Bush, whose PhD was in physics, and they hired a new professor whose PhD was in mathematics, and we're starting a new group, and Bob gave a talk to the electrical engineering department, and I said, oh, well, that sounds interesting. Instead of building an intelligent machine, I'll study the intelligent machine. And I went to Bob, and we talked, and he said, you don't know anything at all about psychology? Wonderful. Come to the department. So you see, the point is, my whole career has been like that. Just things open up and I say, okay, let's do it. And so I went to psychology, which was, um, I had real trouble with psychology. I think I almost flunked out of graduate school because I couldn't pass. The, I hated the courses. It was all memorization uh, of who did what experiment. And I was used to science and engineering where you were told, don't memorize. Yes, understand the fundamental principles and you can always derive what you need. Well, that wasn't true of psychology, but in that event, these people were trying to develop a new field called mathematical psychology. So I got my PhD in mathematical psychology, and when it was time to get a job, <laughs> my advisor, Duncan Luce, the uh, mathematician, said, so where would you like to go? And we talked about all the different places and decided I should go to either Harvard or MIT. So he said, okay, I'll get you appointments there and you can go interview them. So, hey, Don. Before we hop into to the Harvard story, there's one thing that I was actually curious about, um, which uh, I've heard you tell several different versions of the stories under interviews you've given, but I, I actually couldn't find this information anywhere. Where did you grow up? I didn't. I'm still growing up. My <laughs> the slide image that. on your website, uh, it, I think, supports that, that, that theory. I, um... My father worked for the U.S. government every two years we moved. So the, the longest I ever lived in one place is when I went to college for four years. And so that's where you learned it for your uh, professional career as well. What do you, uh, I mean, did explain. you, you, you've hopped around a lot in your professional career. So you uh, actually no. Um, so I went, so let, let me just finish this because that'll answer your question. I went to Harvard. Uh, and that's where I started to learn psychology. My first, I decided to go to Harvard, not MIT. MIT, I said, oh, I know about MIT. Let me go to Harvard. And I went to the Center for Cognitive Studies, and I didn't know what the word cognitive even meant. And, um, but that was a really, that was the hotbed of everything. So, you know, we had lunch with Noam Chomsky every, every week. And we, uh, and all sorts of people came through, and I started to learn what psychology was about. And I, but I still didn't know psychology, so I, I published what I called information processing psychology using my electrical engineering background. And I actually did quite a lot of publication. And, um, and then the University of California at San Diego opened up and um, I was asked to, to join it. And I joined in 1966 and stayed there for 27 years. So I don't consider that I was jumping around a lot. I stayed there for 27 years. Um, and uh, 
I started in psychology and eventually became chair of the department. And then I saw psychology was too narrow. It had its own methods and, own, and you couldn't do anything aside from its own strict experimental procedures. And I wanted to bring in artificial intelligence and I wanted to bring in neuroscience and philosophy and anthropology and social sciences. And um, so I started a department called cognitive science. It's a longer story, but that's a simply, which turned out to be the first department in the world, actually, or definitely in the United States, it's debatable about whether in the world, and I was the first chair. But I also, my work was moving along and I was starting to study internal representation and memory and attention. And, and then I got interested in how people did things and action, and that got me interested in human error. And I wrote a paper in human error and therefore, I got invited to examine the um, nuclear power accident called Three Mile Island to see why the operators had made the wrong decisions. And the committee I was on was wonderful. We said the operators were very intelligent. They made the best decision they could have made, given what they knew. And it was a bad design. And that made me realize, oh, I have engineering background. I understand the technology. I understand psychology and people. So maybe I should be working in that. And I switched my areas to actually aviation safety was the first, but it was the use of people and technology. So I, I, I don't switch around physically that much, although I know it sounds like it in my more recent years, but I do switch the areas in which I'm working. And, uh, and, I, and it's, it's not deliberate. It's not accidents happen. Oh, gee, that's interesting. Oh, I think I can contribute. And the sort of the way I work is I, um, I find an area that I think is important and that I think I can make a, a unique contribution. If I feel that my contribution, if there are lots of other people already in the area, and I don't see why I would make any difference, I don't go in there. And it was an area that I think is important, but I don't have the right talents or experience or training. I don't go there. I try to find something that's unique where my contribution can make a difference. And I usually start and I have no idea what I'm doing and I don't understand the field. And I'm basically for the first couple of years, I just wander about with no guidance and no direction. But eventually I figure out an approach and I put it together and I'm always teaching, I'm always teaching the things I'm studying. So I don't even know what I'm talking about when I'm teaching the early courses. And it's a, which makes the courses interesting because it's a joint discovery between me and the students of what's going on. What is this field? How do we approach it? And then I usually write a book which summarizes what I've learned and then I go on to a new topic. Okay, I'm finished. Which is a problem because people keep asking me questions about what the work I've done that I'm known for, which is usually the work I did 10 years ago. And I don't even remember it, let alone be interested anymore. So what happened though, is I got more and more interested in the application of psychology and cognitive science. And I discovered that I was consulting for Xerox Palo Alto Research Center, which developed the first uh, modern computer, and uh, also for Apple, which was developing the Macintosh. And I discovered, oh, guess what? The, some of the people who were designing the very first Macintosh had been students of mine. Uh, and who was that? So, 
Or was that, I mean, was, uh, so they, they took your classes at UCSD. Yeah. Wow. I took a class called cognitive engineering, which is my attempt to be, uh, to, to apply the work in psychology and cognitive science into devices. And, um, so anyway, I took an early retirement from UCSD. I retired in 1993 and took a job at Apple where I became eventually vice president of advanced technology. And, and then once you're in Silicon Valley, jobs don't last long. It's just commonplace that you move from one place to another. In fact, when we had trouble, I would lay off, I would have to fire people, lay them off. And you usually got a good package of money, depending upon how long you've been working. Um, I got people coming to me complaining. What are you complaining about? You're still here. I didn't fire you. No, I wanted you to fire me. And because the way the Silicon Valley works, if I let you go, you get a you might get a year's salary as a, a sign-off benefit, and then you go and you get a job like in the next week. It was easy. People really wanted to hire people that came from Apple, and they would you would get a salary larger than what you had at Apple, and maybe a sign-on bonus. And then in a year or two. You could quit that company and come back to Apple and get a new sign-on bonus and get a salary larger than what you got at the other company. So you will be now further ahead at Apple at a higher salary and a higher rank than had you stayed. It was a game people played. It was really amazing. Um, but anyway, I, I left Apple and was an executive at HP and then started my own company, the Nielsen Norman Group, which is still in existence. And, followed a startup to Chicago and it didn't make it. So then I ended up teaching computer science at um, Northwestern and started the Siegel Design Institute. Retired from Northwestern. I went back to Palo Alto to live. And uh, the head of UC San Diego, the chancellor came to my home and said, come back, start a design group. And I said, no. I'm not interested. I don't want a job. I don't need a job. I'm on many committees. I'm on boards of companies. I'm too busy. But he came back again and convinced me by saying, do anything you want, but only two conditions. First, it has to be important. And second, it has to be exciting. So I'm now back in San Diego. But see, I didn't move around all that much. And as far as I'm concerned, I've been following a kind of a thread, which is applying my knowledge of technology, of society, of people uh, in different different areas. You're right, Don. You're the paragon of stasis. I, I, uh, I was totally incorrect in my bouncing around comment earlier. Uh, no, there's a bunch of stuff that I want to get into in, in all that. Can I ask can I ask you some questions uh, about some of the milestones along the way? That's the whole point of this interview. I suppose it is. I suppose we're in the right place for that then. Uh, okay, so I want to talk about the Center for Cognitive Studies at Harvard. Um, did, you, did you know George Miller? Yeah, it was run by George Miller and Jerry Brewer. Yeah. So, did, I mean, did you have any interaction with them? I was his postdoc. Yeah, all really? the time. So what what was what was George Miller like? Because he's this huge figure. Uh, what did you have any experiences with him that sort of like stand out to you, or was there something you learned from him besides what the word cognitive means? Anything like that? He wasn't very good at um, at interaction. That is, I would go into his office to talk and. 
we never got into any sub subject very deeply. Um, there's a couple of famous psych uh, psychologists like that. Uh, Bill Estes um, is one. He's, he's sort of the extreme case where when you go to his office to talk, he would just sit there. And you would ask him a question, and he would go, mm. And after three or four or five minutes, you would wonder, you know, is he sleeping, is he, et cetera. He once invited me to a party at his home and I went to his office and said, thank you very much, I'd like to come. Well, George was not quite that bad, but he was in that direction. Um, but, but I learned a lot by being in the atmosphere that he had created, which was his vibrant, very active, where people were debating and discussing. And the very first day I showed up, I started a fierce argument with the first person I met. Uh, and, um, and as a result of that fierce argument, we published about eight or nine papers together. Because the way Harvard works is by argumentation I and mean, debates. And you, um, something that industry doesn't understand because in academics, when you argue with somebody, it actually means you have some respect for them. If I don't like you or I don't think your ideas have any merit at all, I'm not even gonna waste my time to argue with you. So the arguments are really very positive and creative. And so I published a lot. And um, I argued a lot, published a lot, learned a lot. But the atmosphere at Harvard was, unfortunately, you had to be very clever. And when there was an outside speaker who would give a talk, um, they gave a talk, and the first person to stand up and ask a question was always Jerry Bruner. But this was typical of Harvard. Jerry did not face the speaker when he asked the question. He faced the audience and asked a question. It was a long little summary of the talk. And then here is a very profound question that Luce raises. And then he would ask the speaker. And a typical thing that happened, I was once at one of these conferences, uh, colloquia, and one of my friends sitting next to me poked me and said, I can't think of a good question. Can you think of one for me? Because the, the young assistant professors and instructors the only way you could shine to make people, hey, I'm here, is to ask a, such a clever question that all the full professors would turn around and say, oh, my goodness, a, a rising star. Yeah, it was just a weird, weird place to be. So when the University of California at San Diego opened up in 19, well, it started in 1965. It's not clear when it started, but um, they hired me. I was the second year that the psychology department had it was in existence, and there were only about a hundred faculty then. Um, and I went and joined UCSD. Uh, but Harvard, it was good to be from Harvard. That's what George Miller said when I came. He said Harvard is a good place to be from, and he was right. But you know, he got me a lectureship in the department of psychology. And he introduced me to the faculty. And the response was that B.F. Skinner, who was the most famous psychology of the 20th century, B.F. Skinner stood up and denounced me in my field. So welcome to Harvard. What about Chomsky? Uh, you, you said you were in a weekly seminar with him. Did you have any, uh, inter any interaction with him or did he leave any impact on you in any particular way? Well, when I was at MIT, we were forced to take courses in the humanities, forced to, my roommate said, oh, there's this new professor 
who just joined and I hear he does some interesting stuff and we, we need one more course. So why don't we both sign up together for that one course? And here is this new professor. He had, this is his very first course ever at MIT. He just got his PhD. And the course was based on his PhD thesis, which wasn't available yet, but it came halfway through the course. And his name was Noam Chomsky. So I took his very first course. And at the end of the course, it was interesting. He said, this is really bizarre. He said, my course has two parts. One is the entire philosophy of how you study language and the competing views, one of them being B.F. Skinner. And, um, and that's what the people in, in Pennsylvania, when I taught this class, they love that part. And the other part is his very formal um, language. Uh, it's, it's a, um, well, it's a phrase structure grammar, but basically it's a Markov chain. It's a very simple language. Um, and um, the people at Penn just couldn't get it. And you are just the opposite, you, all the students in the class. You, you didn't understand the philosophical arguments whatsoever, but the mathematics and the logic and the language, yeah, you got it right away. And so that was interesting. But actually at Harvard, I kind of felt I was a spectator. Uh, I would sit at the table as a very junior member of the people around the table with uh, you know, some of the top philosophers of time, uh, of the time and uh, and linguists and yeah, Noam and um, I remember the names of the philosophers. Um, tip of my tongue. And uh, the debates that they had were incredible. Uh, I thought they were irrelevant, but very profound. <laughs> um, so I mean, all of that way. going going on around you, it was such an epicenter of what we now think of as the cognitive revolution. Did it seem like something big was happening at the time? Um, and then I, you know, I guess, I've, I've lived through several revolutions and you don't notice you're in a revolution until it's over. Yeah. Uh, I, I've also heard you say that you uh, imported the idea of information processing from your mathematical background to, to what was happening at the Center for Cognitive Studies. Was that, um, maybe I'm, I'm misquoting that, but was that, what, what was your influence there? And what was your, what were you working on at the time uh, around those sort of ideas? Okay, but first of all, I was not the only person doing this. In fact, George Miller had done a lot of really good work. And, um, <clears throat> Quite a number of other people had done good work uh, bringing in modern information processing concepts into, well, today it isn't modern, but at the time it was modern information processing concepts into psychology. Um, and uh, what I did is I found Nancy Waugh and we wrote papers about human memory. And by the way, memory wasn't, the notion of short-term memory didn't exist. We, we helped invent it. Well, we borrowed it from William James, who called it primary memory. And so we wrote a paper called Primary Memory, taking the name from William James. William James, all the American psychologists are, I just couldn't stand. But I discovered William James, and oh yeah. Uh, and the books he wrote in the late 1800s and early 1900s were wonderful because uh, he took these broad topics and tried to understand them and understand what was going on. Whereas once the behaviorists took over, vroom, all that was gone. 
And uh, George Miller brought it back and Jerry Bruner brought it back. But that wasn't well accepted by most people. And uh, but Nancy and I did that. And then I also found Wayne Wicklegren at MIT and we published Mathematical Models of Human Memory based a lot on signal detection theory, which we also incorporated, which was, a, it's a, it came from signal processing engineering, but was made popular by uh, David Green and um, Green's John Sweats. Uh, Dave, David Green was on the faculty of the psychology department at Harvard, and John Sweats was at Boat Veronica Newman, uh, a, a wonderful consulting company in Cambridge. And uh, so we, we used those methods to talk about how human memory might work, and we had mathematical models of it. And my first book was Mathematical Models of Memory. And uh, when, I got, when I got the job at Harvard at UCSD, and again, it was the same sort of, not the way it's done today. Uh, David Green said that he was thinking of going to UCSD, and I said, what's that? And he told me it was this place in San Diego or La Jolla, and um, I'd never heard of it. Well, I'd heard of it because I knew about the Scripps Institute of Oceanography. And that's the only reason I knew about it. And, um, and he said, well, I'm going to go there. Why don't you come with me? <laughs> and I said, well, uh, gee, I don't know. They haven't, I, aren't they supposed to talk to me? And he said, okay. And so like two days later, they called me up and invited me to come. And I went and I, I spent a morning talking to the, there were only three faculty members. And I spent a morning talking to them. And then we went out to have lunch. And then we came back and they put me on the balcony of the building. And um, they went away. And then they came back and offered me a job. And uh, Interestingly enough, they offered me an associate professorship with tenure, uh, and uh, I accepted it. And um, they thought that I was more senior than I was and that I needed tenure. So uh, I never got to be an assistant professor. Isn't that nice? That is a pretty sweet deal, as a matter of fact. <laughs> so I, I want to ask you a couple questions about design of everyday things which started off life as the psychology of, of everyday things. Uh, and so there's a couple of things that strike me as, as brilliant about that work. So one is obviously the ideas, uh, sort of underlying, you know, just uh, theses of user-centered design, affordances, great. Tons of, tons of great stuff there. But the second thing is that there's a certain prose style that you have and that you're able to cultivate in that book. Uh, it's direct. It's, it's casual, but authoritative, it's punchy, and it makes the book work really well. And so I'm curious to know, did you have, where did you, where did that come from? Were there writers that you looked up to? Uh, certainly not academics in, in, in psychology, it seems like. I mean, like, who, who, who was, were there any inspirations there? Well, when I did at MIT, you had to do an undergraduate thesis. <clears throat> and when I wrote my undergraduate thesis, my advisor told me that I was hopeless. I was never going to succeed. I should make sure I found a job where I didn't have to write. And then when I went to uh, Penn, uh, we had a big research group in electrical engineering and nobody could write. And so we had, we had hired a writer. 
So using the fund, we hired a writer. So, so we just assumed engineers couldn't write sensible language. And so there was a professional writer. We would explain what we were trying to say and the writer would write it. And then when I went to psychology department, well, when I did my PhD thesis, one of my advisors, Saul Sternberg, a very famous psychologist at the time, um, went out and bought a book on how to write and presented it to me. Well, I have a theory about what I do, which is I've already explained a little bit. I try to find an area where I can make a difference myself, ideally one that hasn't been well traversed by other people. <laughs> there's, a, there's a saying I like to say is, um, I always want to be the best person in the world in my field. And the way you can be the very best person in the world is to be the only one. But the trick, <laughs> lots of people are the only person in the field, but it's a field nobody gives a damn about. The trick is to find a field that nobody gives a damn about yet because they don't know about it, but that they will decide is really important and they'll all pour in. And then it's time to leave and find another field people don't know about. So the trick is finding the right field. But the other thing is, you should know your strengths and try to find work that, are, that uses your own strengths and know your weaknesses and try to find work where you don't have to ever use your weakness. And my weakness was writing. However, I also realized that if I'm going to succeed in academia, I had to be able to write. So I decided to teach myself how to write. Now, fortunately, Duncan Luce was a fantastic writer. And so anytime I wrote a paper, he would return it filled with red marks. He, I don't know how many hours he spent correcting my papers. And I tried to figure out why he wrote what he did. I mean, it was clear his writing was better than mine, but I tried to figure it out and I didn't really figure it out. But he told me he had learned how to write from Smitty Stevens at Harvard. And Smitty Stevens was the world's most famous psychoacoustician and uh, sensory psychologist. And so when I got to Harvard, um, I worked a lot with Stevens and he didn't teach me how to write though. What I, just, what I did was I started reading and I realized there were lots of papers I just couldn't understand. And I decided that was just my lack of you know, ability. I, I'm sorry, I just can't understand these complex things. And there are papers that were really easy to understand. George Miller's papers were really easy to understand. So I assumed they were easier concepts. So the more I thought about it, the more I just looked carefully, no. The ones I couldn't understand were just crapper. They were just badly written. And the ones that I had that were easy, like George's, they were filled with deep, profound insights, but they were understandable. Um, so the first thing was to recognize the difference between good and bad writing. And the second thing was to try to practice and read. And for the first time I started reading, paying attention not to the meaning of what was there, but the way it was described and expressed. And I also read a lot of novels because the difference between a novel and, and a scientific paper is huge. And here's the main thing I learned from George Miller. He never knew that I learned this from him, but I discovered once some of, I was in his office and there was a bunch of stuff he was throwing away and I happened to look at it and it was early drafts of his papers. And they were horrible. And I asked him about it. And he said, I really hate to write. It takes me forever to write. I have to work on it and work on it and work on it. 
that was the insight. And that's an insight I teach all my students. Because I used to think that you're born a good writer or you're not. And I was one who was not. And then I discovered that actually, no, you can teach yourself to write and it's hard work. And even the best writers find it hard work. Oh, okay, well, it's hard work and you learn it. Okay, I can do that. And so, you know, I, I write my books. I tell people I can write my book in about two months. Now, that's misleading because I can't start the book until I really have understand everything I'm going to write. And then it comes out really fast. So it takes me several years before I can be able to sit down and write the book in two months. Okay. Then I spend a year rewriting the book. I gave it to my wife to read, and she's, though, she's a great editor. First of all, she's a good writer, but second of all, she tells me the truth. This is crap. Uh, this belongs at the end, not at the beginning. This in the middle belongs as your beginning. Did you know that you said the same things five different times in different parts of the book, et cetera, et cetera. And so I spent a, a year rewriting it. So that's what I learned about writing, how to write. And it was, and um, I've always been good at speaking. And I decided I was going to write the way I speak. Now, that was good for my popular books, but wow, is it bad in academia. I, I wrote a, my paper, I told you I wrote a paper on human error. Um, I submitted it to the Psychological Review, the best journal in psychology at that time, and I think it's still true. And <laughs> I started off with a story. I said, a friend of mine, it was actually George Mandler, told me, he said, I must be getting old. I, I went to the cabinet to pour myself a glass of scotch. I took out the scotch and a glass and I poured the scotch into the glass. And then I put the glass back in the cabinet and I walked away holding the bottle. <laughs> and I said, well, I don't think that's because you're old. I do the same things. And that made me made me say, let me look, collect all these kinds of errors that people made. So that's how I started the paper as a preface. And I got back the paper like two days later. And the editor who actually was Bill Estes, um, the complete review was, come on, Don. <laughs> and so what I did was I threw away that and I tightened up some of the other language and made it a bit duller and more sounding like a psychology paper. And, and then he accepted it with no revisions as a leading article in one of the issues. And, uh, but it's, it actually turned out to be hard if you learn to write popular text and to switch back and forth between that and a scientific article. But it's really interesting. You should read Einstein's short paper on, the, on relativity theory, the short one, which is um, the, the, base, the, the basics. There's no mathematics in it and it's beautiful and it's filled with these wonderful examples I'm, I'm standing, I'm in a train and here comes another train and et cetera, et cetera. And there's an observer and um, in those days you could write those really neat articles. You can't today. Amazing. 
Um, that's really cool to hear. And you know, I actually, it makes a ton of sense now talking to you where that prose style came from, and also the conscious effort to make it sound like you you speak uh, and uh, you know direct, punchy, casual but authoritative. Uh, it comes out in both. Uh, really cool to see. Um, okay, so let's let's do a little compare and contrast academics versus practitioners. Uh, your sort of classic spiel about it, and I'm paraphrasing, is that academics don't do and practitioners don't think. Um, and you sort of came to that insight while you were at Apple. So let's maybe break it down one side at a time. What do you think academics can learn from practitioners? And probably a much tougher question, what do you think practitioners can learn from academics? I think they both can learn from each other. Um, and I'm actually one of the, a major activity that I'm doing and that I hope to continue for the next several years is to change the way that designers are educated, to change the entire philosophy of education of designers. And design is primarily a profession today of practitioners. And one of the problems is there's very, there are not very many fundamental principles. There are lots of principles they love to tell you about, but you ask, you know, what is the evidence for it? And there isn't any. Um, and the, the only ones that have any principles are mostly are the ones that come from psychology. Uh, and um, in part, the new field is called human computer interaction, which is in the design field, that's called interaction design. Uh, Fordlands is an example in constraints and a lot of the stuff I write about is, are examples, but that's novel in, in design. And, um, and practitioners love to give talks and it's amazing. The talks that practitioners give are, they show a slide, I did this. And I did this. And I did this. And then I did this. And what I want them to do is say, I did this. And it was horrible. It didn't work. I threw it away and I did this. And that didn't work. And I modified this. And I did that. And I did this. And in fact, finally, the client rejected it and said, oh, no. Or I was doing this and we built it and, and it was not, didn't work. And here's what we did to change it. And the point being, I made mistakes all along, errors, this, that, everything wrong, didn't know what I was doing, and I modified it and did something that you now, everybody thinks it's great and wonderful, but they don't, the world doesn't see all the intermediate steps. And so here's what you can learn from my experience. And they don't do that. They just want to show you the final result as if it came out of nowhere. By the way, I complain about teachers the same way. Uh, take a computer science teacher or a mathematician or any of the sciences particularly. Um, when they teach a class and they've assigned homework problems, the day before the class, they review the homework problems and the answers so that if a student asks them, they can answer it. And the student says, Professor, I didn't understand problem seven. And the professor goes and looks at problem seven and says, oh yes, and then goes to the board and shows what, how you get to the answer. And I say, no, don't do that. Don't look at the problems. And so the teachers, the students, says, I couldn't do problem seven. You don't remember what problem seven is. You read it and you say, oh, well, here, here's what you do. What you do, this, that, and that, and then 
oh no, that's wrong. Uh, let me think. Oh, it's not conservation of momentum. It's conservation of energy. Let's redo it. And that's what the students will learn that, hey, even the experts do it the wrong way. It's no big deal. The expert doesn't say, oh, I did it wrong. Oh my God, the world is coming to the end. The expert said, oh yeah, that's right. Let's try a different path. And so that is what students should learn because when a student watches somebody do it perfectly and then they try it for their own homework and they get all lost, they say, I'm not any good at physics or mathematics or whatever the field is. No, no, they just have to stick with it. So um, that's what I think the talks ought to be like. Well, um, the, the, the reason, it isn't that the, the saying I make is that in academics there's a lot of thinking but very little doing, and in industry there's a lot of doing but very little thinking. It's not because they're incapable of the other half. It's that because in academics you're rewarded for publications. And if I, another saying I have is if I, if I figure out something that will save a thousand lives, my friends will say, well, that's nice. If I write a paper that gets published in Science Magazine, I get promoted. And in an industry, of course, it's just the opposite. If I do something that saves lives or makes a lot of money with a company, I get promoted. And if I write a paper in a you know, high prestige journal, who cares? In fact, they probably never even read the journal. And um, it's because of time, it's the reward structure and time. In industry, just don't have time. If a lot of people say they want to write up what they've done or they want to rethink deeply about what they learned and didn't learn, but there's always a next project, the next emergency. So there's never any time to do anything with depth. And that's the problem and that's the real difference. And here's another difference. I entered industries thinking, oh, I've been studying these problems for a long time and I can apply my theories and make things better. Well, it turns out you can't. There are not only are there others, all sorts of constraints, but the theoretical work has all sorts of holes and gaps and things that are critical to making a product. They're just not even included. And so I found going back and forth was useful because in industry, you learn where the gaps in knowledge are. And you can bring that back to academia, which can actually start to investigate them. So I think going back and forth is useful and the different mindsets complement each other. They're very different, but they're very useful. And so many academics do work. Well, here's something else I learned at Harvard. One of the people there was buried in the basement, um, didn't even have an academic appointment because well, I don't know why it's Harvard. So he was a researcher with no academic appointment and he studied hearing. And, um, but he, he was very well respected in the field of hearing. Um, and, <laughs> and so I got to know him a little bit and we talked a lot. His name was George von Beckeshe. And um, he said, one of the hardest things to learn in science, doing science is to ask the right question. That lots of graduate students um, ask really deep, important questions. But they're so deep and so important that no one has a slightest idea how to begin, what to do. And lots of 
especially assistant professors who have to be promoted and they have to publish papers, they ask trivial questions. They read somebody's paper and they say, oh, I think there's a flaw there. And they repeat the experiment and they try to see what the flaw is. So they do things that are trivial and they actually most of the publications in the world, in any field, by the way, are nonsense. They're, 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 they are, maybe they're not nonsense, but they don't really make much difference. The hard part, said Von Bakashe, is to ask a question that is both very important and will lead to new insights and is something you can actually make progress on. That's the hard part. And I've taken that to heart all my time is trying to understand. So I started off as a mathematical psychologist. I've stopped using mathematics because um, the kind of problems I want to study, I'd love to be able to do a mathematical model or a formal model, but you can't. So many people, they, they think it's important to measure, so they'll measure. But they don't know how to measure the stuff that really matters. They'll measure something else that has some relationship to it, and they'll name it by what really matters. Now I think they're studying what really matters, but they're not. They're studying what they can measure. Look at, I mean, that's what an exam is. It's, it's measuring something in a really horrible way, but our lives depend on the exam scores or our IQ score. And an IQ doesn't measure anything that's useful about whether you're gonna succeed in life. So, yeah. So ask the right question, that's hard. And by the way, Von Bekashe then suddenly out of nowhere wins a Nobel Prize in medicine, because that's where the hearing work would go. Did they give and then Harvard an after that? And then Harvard said, oh, gee, oh yeah, we should make you a professor. And he said, fuck you. And uh, he went to Hawaii, where, where they built a big building for him. And uh... Now that's a happy ending right there. Um, okay, yeah, I get, do you have any way to, do you have any metrics or uh, codified intuitions about how you latch on to something that's sufficiently important to you make a splash, uh, but is, you know, undervalued. I think, by I think you said latch on. I think the correct words are stumble upon. I do a lot of stumbling. I do. That's what I say. I'm wandering about, not knowing what I'm doing, not trying to understand, trying to read this, talk to different people, uh, learn about different areas until uh, I just sort of stumble across something. And then, uh, it, is it, do you feel like it's, when you stumble on something, is it like, does it hit you in the side of the head and you're like, oh my God, that's, that's it. Uh, I'm going to dig into that. Or it, is it a chipping away process where you're like, okay, you know, there's something here and then you're still moving around a little bit. Do you have a sense of, a little, of how a little bit of, A little bit of both. I mean, here's an example I just discovered. Uh, signal detection theory, which I've mentioned already, uh, is basically you're trying to detect a signal in noise and you, it, it's really hard because sometimes the noise sounds like the signal you're trying to hear and sometimes the, the signal you're trying to hear is buried in the noise. So how do you know whether you've heard it or not? And basically <clears throat> the theory goes, you have to make a decision criterion that if it's on this side, I'll say, yeah, that's the signal. And if it's on that side, no, it isn't. But where you can move the criterion around and if you move it up too high, you're going to 
Every time you say it's a signal, you're correct, but you miss a lot of them. If you move it too low, you, you don't miss any of the signals, but a lot of the time when you say it's a signal, it's not, it's a false alarm. And so it, you can vary the hit rate to the false alarm rate and you plot the hit rate in the vertical axis and the false alarm rate on the horizontal axis. And this gives what's called a receiver operating characteristic, which shows how as you increase the hit rate, you also increase the false alarm rate. And uh, you can tell whether something is more sensitive than another uh, because it, the curve that it makes will be above the other one. So for the other one, for any given false alarm rate and hit rate, the, the better one will be a higher hit rate and maybe the same false alarm or a lower false alarm rate or maybe the same hit rate. So, but collecting that curve is really hard. And one day, and most times you just get one point, a particular hit rate and false alarm rate. Then you do some other condition, you get a different false alarm rate and hit rate. And how do you know which is better? Because one of them has a higher hit rate and the other one, and, but a, but also a higher false alarm rate than the other. How do you know if it's better or not? So I just, I invented a, geograph, geographical, a geometrical proof. It's really trivial. I sort of annoyed Duncan Lewis is a deep mathematician and here I did something with geometry to demonstrate that here's a space, anything, a second point in this space is worse. And this space, any point in this space is better. And this space, you can't tell. And if you have two points, it narrows the space. So you, you still have the same kind of three different areas, but the ambiguous part is smaller. <clears throat> and um, and then, then another friend of mine read my paper and we decided that if you measure the area underneath, uh, that would be a good measure. You don't, it's just one number instead of the two false alarm hit rate. <clears throat> and so, um, I was, I'm doing a lot of work in healthcare now, and I discovered that the, a lot of the medical people do the area under the operating characteristic. And I said, what? <laughs> I invented that. Where did it come from? <clears throat> and I went and looked at their papers. No, no reference to me. Uh, so where did it come from? So I looked at the earliest paper that they had cited and would read and would look at it. No, it didn't mention me. But I looked at the earlier paper they had cited. And eventually I got to some of the very first papers in health in medicine. And I was cited. Yeah, that's where it came from. So that's kind of interesting because I did something that was interest that was important. And uh, was even so important it's been it's standard practice in one of the fields. I believe that goes back specifically to what you said about you can either publish a paper or you can save lives. And this is one of those rare instances where you did both. Well, that's what I'd like to do. I'd like to publish papers that make a difference. And I did a lot since I've published a lot of paper in aviation safety. Uh, I may very well have saved lives. Who knows? It's hard to know if you've saved a life because it means an accident doesn't happen. But if an accident doesn't happen, you, you don't know why the accident didn't happen. You only know why an accident did happen. It's the um, look where the uh, the planes that are returning don't have bullet holes principle. Um, yeah, except I don't work on those kind of planes. I work on <laughs> commercial, not commercial that kind aviation. of aviation safety. Right. So we're coming up to the last uh, few minutes that we have scheduled here. Um, and I guess one thing that I'd like to know right now 
um, is what are you personally studying at the moment? You've always got something going on that's pushing the boundaries of what you know. Uh, and I know you're interested in design education. I assume that's something you've been thinking about a lot over the years. But what are you studying uh, and finding interesting and you know broaching new ground on at the moment? I think um, the field of design is a field of craftsmen who make beautiful, wonderful objects. If you go to design school, you spend four years learning how to draw, learning about materials, learning about form and shape and color and beauty. And I think that's a waste of design. I, I love the stuff to produce. I don't want people to stop. I want the craft design to exist. I buy the stuff. But the field of design is a field of applications, a field of applying all of the different knowledge we have in the university and it should be applied to the most important problems of our time. And so the United Nations has a list of 17 societal issues that need to be addressed. And I want designers to be the people who are addressing those problems like hunger, um, uh, clean water, healthcare, education. These are really important critical issues. And I think design can make a difference because we focus upon the people we understand you've got to solve the core problem, not just a symptom. We treat it as a system. And we also know that when we're dealing with society and humans that we don't know enough to be right. And therefore we do things in small steps and we experiment. And we don't mind being wrong. We say that's not wrong, that's actually how we learn. We modify, we change, and we slowly make a difference. And I want to also change design from being um, an arrogant uh, field where we go into a society which just has great big sanitation problems and we say, oh, I understand your problem. And we come back and we give, a, give them a huge uh, course, you know, it's gonna cost $10 billion and it will take a, a few decades, but here's what you should do. So we're basically, we're telling them what to do. We're telling them, here's your problem and here's a solution. And it almost always fails. And there's a wonderful book called The Curity of Experts because experts do this, they come in, they understand the problems, that's why they're experts, but they don't understand the people or the culture or the capability. And therefore their, no, their money is almost always wasted and takes forever. And um, so what I wanna do is address those issues, but by using the intelligence creator of people who already understand the issues. They live there, they know what the issues are, they've been trying to address them, and they often have very creative, wonderful solutions to get them going. The solutions are always, almost always on the symptoms because they don't have the resources to approach what the fundamentals might be. I point out that when you have, a, say, a cholera epidemic, well, you can cure the cholera disease, that healthcare professionals can do that. Uh, but why do they have the disease? Well, it's transmitted by bad sanitation. Oh, we're bringing the educators to teach them how to have better sanitary habits. Well, but why do they have bad sanitary? Well, do they, do they have clean running water? No. Do they have good toilets? No. In fact, a large number of them, especially in the United States, are homeless. So if you want to cure the disease, you have to cure the homeless problem. But actually, that's not even quite it, because why are they homeless? These are important societal issues, and that's what I'm spending my time doing, trying to move there and do that. And they're really hard and they're difficult, and they require working together with a large number of disciplines. So I'm trying to say, designers, you can't 
Who cares if you control well? That's not even relevant for curing a problem like clean water and stuff. What it does matter is the way you think and the way you address things and the way you try to get to the fundamentals and you focus on people. All the other disciplines and approaches, they don't focus on the individual people and, on, and their abilities. And that's what I'm trying to do and that's where I'm spending all of my time. And when I'm trying to change design education, this will be a major part of design for the 21st century. You know who I think would really love this uh, program that if he could see it? Jerry Bruner. Uh, I feel like the combination between education, uh, tackling uh, big problems and that sort of stuff. It's not that he would do it himself, uh, but that uh, this is the kind of uh, you know, huge, huge thing that I think he'd be really proud to see uh, someone no. who... No, instead of Jerry Bruner, do it on Seymour Papert. Okay. Uh, so like Perceptron, uh, you know... Uh... No, you may know Minsky and Papert because they were both mathematicians, but, but Seymour spent a lot of time with Piaget and came out and his major contribution is education. The construction of this view. You ever hear the programming language logo? Because what he did is he invented this really simple programming language uh, called logo, which you could do all sorts of things. The one thing you could do is you drove a turtle. Oh, so that, you had a machine. Yeah. Okay, and you could tell the turtles turn right, turn left, and so on. But what he loved to do, he would teach that to young kids because it was really easy to learn. But here's a trick. I can tell the turtle to turn right or turn right at you know 30 degrees, 40 degrees. So here, I want you to write a program. So here's the only commands. Uh, and it has a pen, by the way. Its tail has a pen on it. So you put it on a piece of paper and it's on the floor. And when it, when it goes around, it draws a picture, a picture from its tail. So you can tell the turtle to go forward a certain number of steps. You can tell it to turn right or left. Uh, uh, a certain number of degrees. Okay, right, what's the program to draw a triangle? Now let's actually do it. So we go up and we turn right 45 and we turn right 45 and we turn right 90, it's not a triangle. So the point is, that's the problem you give to kids who all understood triangles, or you can make it a square, do a, you know, but, um, and, and it wouldn't be a triangle because what he was teaching them was not programming. He was teaching them debugging. That's what he called it. He was teaching them to think. He would say, if you think you understand something, you try and it doesn't work. Oh, well, don't get upset. Don't get annoyed. Sit back and say, why is it it doesn't work? And that's what he taught them. And he had all sorts of schemes for teaching kids. And he was wonderful. And he was also, he would jump up and down and he would get the kids excited. He was really wonderful. Now, so for you, I'm going to ask you, you can solve this after we quit. How come I just did 180 degrees? I mean, 45, 45, and 90, that's 180. Why wasn't it a triangle? So the best way to learn that, by the way, is to take a pencil and to actually do it on a piece of paper, and then, you, then you'll begin to understand why it isn't right. Because the real point is you don't want to turn 60. You want to turn 120. Because the real point is, if I'm an outside observer looking at the triangle, 
I it's from my perspective, looking at the triangle, I see three 60 degree angles or a, a 245 and a 90 degree angle. However, if I'm walking along this, I'm, the, I'm walking and from my perspective walking and if I turn 45 um, and then I turn 45, wait a minute, if, I, if I'm from afar, I look at that 45 degree turn, it, it just looks like a 45 degree angle. It looks like a 125 degree angle. Yeah, really, yeah. And so, that's interesting. It's egocentric. And actually, there's a, um, a computer scientist at MIT wrote a whole book called Turtle Geometry, in which they explored what the geometry looks like when the, when the, when the perspective is a moving object doing the actual geome geometrical objects. It's really interesting. But the point is, what Seaborn was about, he, he tried to revise the entire curriculum of, of uh, K-12 schools based around problem solving and around issues that cause people to have to think and understand how it got applied. And they learned these wonderful principles because the most important thing he wanted to learn was how to learn. And there's a whole school. And if you look at education departments today, um, there's a whole school based on a lot of the work he had done. He made the mistake of dying. And once you die, then your name gets forgotten. So people may not remember that it was him, but Uh, so that's the sort of thing I like to work on. Yeah, well, uh, I think that's uh, going to capture the imaginations of a lot of uh, people who will uh, continue build, building on that for a long, long time. Uh, so that's that's a huge that's that's a hugely exciting project. So and that's what I care about because if you want to look to say what was my most important contribution that's long lasting, I always say two things: my students. And my books. My goal is to indoctrinate the world <laughs> to think this way and to go out and make differences. Yeah. Well, you've certainly made a hell of a lot of progress since uh, you left Harvard on on that. Uh, so uh, I think that's great. So thank you so much for taking the time to do this today. This was a huge honor and uh, uh, an immense pleasure. Thank you. Good to talk to you. Bye. That was my conversation with Don Norman. Uh, we covered a lot of ground there, and it was fun to hear him touch on all those different aspects of his career. And a lot of it, you know, I didn't even I didn't even know some of the depth of of where he was at in as of, uh, in those early days of cognitive science. Very interesting to hear about, and very impressive to see someone who has straddled the line between academia and industry so convincingly, where most people choose one side of the aisle or the other and sort of stick in that lane. He's really crossed back and forth in a really cool way. And so if you want to connect with me, you can do so through my newsletter. That's at codycommerce.com newsletter. And uh, I will be back here with another episode of Cognitive Revolution next week.